What's up everybody, Gen X Dividend Investor here. In this video I'm going to tell you about my insane experience and learnings of investing through the dot-com crash in hopes of helping those of you who haven't been investing for decades. So I recommend you watch this entire video as I'll be sharing a plethora of useful investing information throughout it. And if you appreciate videos like this then please hit the thumbs up button, subscribe if you haven't yet and click that bell notification. Also consider sharing this video with one person you know, as that's a great way you can support my goal of educating the world to dividend investing. Okay, so first I'll give you a quick recap about me. I graduated with a degree in math and computer science in the early to mid-90s, and my first job was as a programmer at a small private company. The internet was just being born. Downloading a web browser and configuring it to work was something that very few people even knew about. There were just a handful of websites on the internet, and initially companies were clueless about it. The way I got started with stocks was because a friend at my job suggested that I start contributing into a 401k, and then I had a few other coworkers who talked about different stocks that they were buying when we went on our lunch breaks. My dad had always told me that the stock market was like gambling, so I was lucky the people at work influenced me to invest. These days my assets are primarily in dividend stocks, but through the years I've gotten experience with both the residential and triple net commercial real estate, and everything has its pros and cons. I've found that good dividend stocks are less stressful to own, have no liability implications, take little to no time to manage once you buy them, are simpler for future generations to cash flow given their hands-off nature, have better liquidity, are faster to invest in along with require smaller amounts of capital, don't require you to have to talk to anyone, don't have any of your debt associated with them, don't require ongoing maintenance and expense costs, and are simpler from a tax perspective. That all being said, I found that I could sometimes get better returns with real estate if I put the effort in and dealt with all the downsides. So I encourage people to explore investing in both real estate as well as stocks, and then over time you can invest in whatever you prefer. Anyways, in the late 90s I formed an investing club with a relative of mine and two of his friends. We all came from different backgrounds. My relative was a mechanical engineer, one guy was an accountant, and another did construction. We would meet once a month at a local restaurant, and each person would bring suggestions of what we should collectively invest in. There was a minimum amount you had to invest every month, and we tracked how much each person contributed, and we formalized the clubs and companies since real money was involved. We mostly focused on investing in tech stocks, but also branched out into other sectors and bought more conservative things like Amgen and such. The 90s were a massive bull market and we felt like rock stars because tech was really flying. Literally anything related to the World Wide Web would just keep shooting up. It was beyond silly. A company could just add .com to its name or start talking about how it was an internet tech company, even though all they had was a plain static website and investors would pile on board. In 2000 the Nasdaq hit a peak of about 5,000. For reference it was at only 431 around 10 years earlier, which was before I started investing. That means it went up 12x in 10 years. Crazy. The S&P 500 went up by a factor of 4x in the same time frame, so about a third as much as the Nasdaq. It felt like the wild, wild west. We honestly expected our stocks to go up each week, and we were surprised and a bit annoyed if they didn't. You could probably throw a dart at a wall of garbage tech names, and anything you hit would go up. The Fed chair at the time said that investors had irrational exuberance, i.e. we were way too bullish on assets which didn't merit our bullishness. The hype of the internet was off the charts. Now what most people got right was how big the internet would become. What most of us underestimated was how far and fast things could turn around. Those days people didn't talk much about cash flow or profit or whatever. Things like intrinsic value and price didn't seem to matter. We all thought that cash flow would come later. We just wanted growth and mindshare. 
Now, there are examples of great businesses that focused on growth over profit for some period of time, kind of like Amazon did, but in the dot-com era, there were very few Amazons. Anyways, I see some similarities in today's market relative to the dot-com days, and then I see some key differences. A difference between the dot-com days and now is that back then the internet was a brand new technology that was in its infancy. Now it's established, pervasive, and it's a massive source of revenue enablement for companies. One similar thing between now and then is that valuations were expensive then and are still expensive now. Here's the average PE of the SP500 over time. The median PE has historically been about a 15. Today in early June we are at 20.94, so still expensive but not egregiously so. This ties to a key lesson I learned, which is that this time is never different. A phrase I first heard before the dot-com crash was, this time it's different. What they meant was that the internet was such a game changer that these new company stocks would break the old norms and averages. Forget 15 PEs. Forget the normal metrics we used to use to value businesses. No, fundamentals didn't matter like they used to for these new companies, and these extremely optimistic stock prices made sense, thus this time it was different. It turns out that in the short run they were right that fundamentals didn't matter relative to stock prices, but the crash proved that in the long run, business metrics always pushed the stock to where it should be. Anyways, to calculate the average PE for the SP500, you add up all the stock prices of the largest 500 companies and divide that by all the company's earnings per share from the previous year, and if you did that for all time, you'd end at around a 15 average. Note, there are actually over 500 tickers in the SP500 because some companies have multiple classes of shares. Like both Google Class A shares, ticker G-O-O-G-L, and Google Class C shares, ticker G-O-O-G, are part of the SP500. Google A shares have regular voting rights, but their Class C shares don't. Google employees usually get stock grants as Class C non-voting shares. And that's why Google Class A shares usually cost a little bit more than Class C shares, though at the time I'm working on this video I see that the Class C ones are actually a few more bucks than the Class A ones. And in case you're curious, Google Class B shares aren't traded publicly and are held by powerful insiders, since each Class B share is equivalent to 10 votes as opposed to one vote that each Class A share has. That makes it so that the founders and the original bigwigs with those Google Class B shares can retain decision-making power in the company. If you own more than 50% of a company's stock, or rather you controlled over 50% of its voting power, then you could do things like elect the entire board of directors, though certain rights still exist to protect minority shareholders, including the right to sue the majority. Okay, back to PEs. So when the overall market average is higher than a 15 PE, then I'd consider it to be expensive, on average, and I'd guess that it'd just be a matter of time until things trend back to historic norms. What we see in this graph is that for most of the 90s, we were above that 15 mark, and that the dot-com crash and then the financial crisis brought PEs back down. You can also see that since 2012 or so, we've been over a 15 overall, so still spending. In the last year, we've fallen from over a 35 down to under 21 right now. I'd personally like to see average PEs continue to trend down or go sideways until earnings catch up to stock prices so we can get closer to a 15 again. Now, you can't simply rely only on PEs to find when something is cheap. For example, in the beginning of recessions, a company's earnings are reflective of when the economy was doing well, but that's much different than what will probably happen as a company lives through bad times. So PEs, like any metric, are useful when used carefully along with a bunch of other data. Okay, another similar thing these days relative to the dot-com days is that a lot of people are investing in riskier assets like spec stocks, unproven IPOs, meme stocks, etc. This chart tracks IPOs in the US over the last couple decades. You can see that we had a lot of IPOs in the years right before the dot-com crash due to the massive amount of new companies that were being created. I actually worked at a company that almost IPO'd before the dot-com crash, but they decided to wait. 
That's a shame as we would have all been millionaires for a few minutes before the dot-com crash. But that company got shot down after the bubble burst. Anyways, you can see how recently in 2020 and 2021, IPOs have shot up again, mostly due to the rise in number of SPAC companies that went public. SPACs make it easier for companies to go public by avoiding the traditional more rigorous IPO process, thus that itself should be a warning sign about those potential investments. These days, as recession alarms ring, venture capitalists' deep pockets are being closed, and I'd imagine that 2022 and 23 will have declining amounts of IPOs. I read an article in the Wall Street Journal which said that VCs are telling founders that they need to take emergency action for what could be the sharpest turn in more than a decade. Their advice includes cutting costs, preserving cash, and jettisoning hopes that hedge funds or other investors will swoop in with big checks. Lightspeed's VC said that the boom times of the last decade are unambiguously over. They said that this is a big change from the growth above all mantra that VCs have been pushing in startups in recent years. And that mantra itself is an example of something that was the same during the dot-com days. The growth over profits mindset was so extreme that it helped enable the dot-com crash. I'll give you an example. There was a dot-com company called TheGlobe.com, which was started by two computer science students from Cornell. The Globe was a social media site that let people chat with others and publish their own content, kind of like Facebook, but many years before Facebook. The Globe IPO'd in 1998 and their stock price shot up over 600% in their first day, so their founders were flushed with cash. One founder was filmed celebrating his new wealth by dancing on a table in a Manhattan nightclub where he said, Got the girl, got the money, now I'm ready to live a disgusting, frivolous life, end quote. That sort of fast money attitude was also apparent in dot-com advertising and marketing budgets, which is a difference between then and now. Now startups are more focused on product innovation than on advertising. In 1999, there were two dot-com companies that ran ads in the Super Bowl. In 2000, there were 17 dot-com companies that had ads in the Super Bowl. That shows you how much they valued Mindshare back then. But people started realizing that these new internet companies were all hype with very little substance. Articles started getting published warning people that internet companies were burning cash fast and had nothing to show for it. The wheels started falling off the bus. Around that time, Microsoft was charged with being a monopoly. Then it came out that MicroStrategy had overstated its 1999 revenue and that the profits they reported were actually a loss and its stock fell 62% in one day. Then news came out that WorldCom had orchestrated a scheme to inflate their earnings to prop their stock price up. It was the largest corporate accounting fraud case in U.S. history. Then the other shoe dropped and it came out that Enron had been doing a bunch of illegal accounting things and their stock price fell from 90 bucks a share down to 26 cents a share. Acquisitions and mergers which had been happening like wildfire suddenly got called off as the S hit the fan. Bankruptcy started piling up as dot-com companies ran out of money since they didn't have great sales nor did they have the open checkbooks from VCs that they previously had. Each new piece of negative news caused the stock selling to get worse. Word came out that Japan had once again entered a recession and that triggered a global sell-off that disproportionately affected tech stocks. The Fed raised interest rates and that applied even more downward pressure on stocks. And just when you think it couldn't possibly get worse, well, September 11th happened and that further accelerated panic and the stock market dropped even more. The party was over, the fat lady was singing, and it was ugly. Do you remember the globe.com? Well, it fell from 97 bucks a share down to 10 cents a share. I don't know how good you are with math, but that's more than a 99% drop. Companies like eToys.com, Excite.com, and Pets.com all went bye-bye. The Nasdaq fell from 5,000 down to 1,100 in two and a half years, aka a 75% drop from peak. 
Do you remember Ethan Hawke in Training Day, and specifically that one scene where he knows he's screwed and he's surrounded by gang members and the one gang guy threatens him saying, have you ever had your S pushed in? Well, being invested mostly in tech in the market back then was a lot like what Ethan Hawke probably felt like in that scene. It made you feel sick. It was a gut punch of epic proportions. Multiple guys that I knew that were into investing quit. In fact, last year I ran into one of the guys that was in our club back then and he was still out of the market over 20 years later. So I'm not kidding when I say that huge crashes can unfortunately rattle people a lot. And that was one of my learnings from the dot-com crash, which is that many people quit investing after their first big crash and that everyone thinks they know how they'll react in a mega crash until they're in a mega crash. Experiencing a real huge crash is different than reading about one. Of course, my advice to you is just don't quit. The people who win are the ones who can deal with the losses and keep moving forward rather than walk away. So when it happens to you, and I assure you that if you invest it will happen, then lick your wounds and pick yourself up. When the dot-com bubble burst, I wanted to quit investing. It was especially devastating because we were feeling invincible on the run-up. The whole experience left me second-guessing my investing decisions. Now, while some retrospection is good, I came away with another learning lesson which is to not beat yourself up. Look, it's easy to focus on bad decisions you've made. Sometimes it's not necessarily you. It could have been unlucky timing or an unforeseeable event. If you invest long enough, you'll pick some losers, and that's okay. You don't always need to be right to do well in the long run. Anyways, our club's portfolio probably dropped more than 75% because we were mostly in tech. I mean, we had some well-known names like Cisco, but even it fell around 80%. And that leads to another lesson I learned, which is that diversification is important. Had we been more diversified out of tech, then our portfolios would have weathered the storm better. And the dot-com crash is when I really learned that almost everyone will do better simply going with broad market inexpensive index funds like VU or VTI. And that reminds me, I have a friend who has been a professional stock investor for almost three decades. He left one of the big investment firms around 20 years ago and started his own company and now manages the portfolios for multiple high net worth clients. I was talking to him this weekend about the market and how things are going and I asked him if he ever had tracked his annualized returns. He hadn't, but he guessed he was around 6-8% annualized. It's pretty crazy when you think about that. People pay him a lot of money to get sub-market returns. Speaking of diversification, consider investing beyond U.S. large-cap stocks, maybe internationally or emerging markets, small caps. I actually knew someone who had gone all-in on two IPO tech stocks, and he lost everything. And I mean everything. I previously mentioned that Enron contributed to the chaos during the dot-com era. Well, I worked with a lady whose entire net worth was in Enron stock, since both her and her husband had worked there for decades. So Enron crashing was another example of why you really want to diversify and not have all your eggs in one basket. Loss hurts. It hurts more than the good feelings you get when stocks go up. I saw a quote that said, Loss aversion is a cognitive bias that describes why, for individuals, the pain of losing is psychologically twice as powerful as the pleasure of gaining. The loss felt from money or any other valuable object can feel worse than gaining that same thing. Watching people quit the market because the gut punch was too much to take taught me another lesson, which is that emotions often ruin your investing decisions. Fear, greed, panic. You need to remain humble on the market. It's common to see inexperienced investors panic in bad markets, usually when things have fallen significantly, but sometimes before anything happens as they try to time the market. Yes, sometimes people get lucky, but overall more people call it wrong than right. Experienced investors have learned to control their emotions. That doesn't mean never selling, however it does mean that you need to make decisions ruled by logic, not fear or greed or whatever. Fear and greed are usually emotions that overpower inexperienced wannabe buy and hold investors. Which is tied to another lesson I learned, which is that most people feel good buying in bull markets near the top, 
Yet most feel bad and thus don't buy in bear markets near the bottom. A way to correct that tendency to want to buy in bull markets and avoid buying in bear markets is to learn how to value your companies so that you always have a sense of how close to intrinsic value you are. If I buy when something is reasonable or cheap, it doesn't bother me if it falls since I took the right actions. Similar to emotions, another lesson I learned is that overconfidence in your abilities or your stocks can wreck you. Don't ignore risks. Don't think you know everything. There is no perfect stock. If you think you've figured out a way to beat the market, well, you'll probably be in for a rude awakening. Which leads to another learning, which is that there is always a lot more to learn about investing. Don't rest on your laurels. You gotta spend time honing your investing craft. Read books, watch videos, talk to experienced people, engage in dividend discords like mine with other investors. The whole dot-com thing was a giant cluster F, and we learned that it's a dog-eat-dog world and we were wearing milkbone underwear. As you can see in this NASDAQ chart, it took about 15 years to get back to where things were before the crash, which itself is a lesson, which is that stock markets can crash or go sideways for literally decades. And that's why people call it the lost decade, because stocks kind of went sideways for a long, long time. In 2002, Scott McNeely, the CEO of Sun Microsystems, aka the company that created the Java programming language, had a great quote about how insane he thought Sun's stock price was before the crash. For reference, Sun's stock was up to around $300 a share before they fell to under $10 a share and eventually Oracle bought them. So this is what their CEO said and listen for his cynicism. At 10 times revenues, to give you a 10 year payback, I have to pay you 100% of revenues for 10 straight years in dividends. That assumes I can get that by my shareholders. That assumes I have zero cost of goods sold, which is very hard for a computer company. That assumes zero expenses, which is really hard with 39,000 employees. That assumes I pay no taxes, which is very hard. And that assumes you pay no tax on your dividends, which is kind of illegal. And that assumes with zero R&D for the next 10 years, I can maintain the current revenue run rate. Now, having done that, would any of you like to buy my stock at $64? Do you realize how ridiculous those basic assumptions are? You don't need any transparency. You don't need any footnotes. What were you thinking? Basically, he was explaining how insane the market was to value his company's stock so ridiculously high. Okay, so I worked for a variety of companies over the years, from startups to Fortune 500 companies, and I transitioned from being a programmer to being in management. I started with a negative net worth due to getting married and taking on my wife's debt, but still became a self-made millionaire in my 30s and a multi-millionaire in my 40s. I did a video called How to Become a Millionaire, where I explained how I did it and why I think anyone can do it. I never inherited a dime, nor won a lottery or anything. I've just been investing for almost 30 years and have learned how to get rich slowly, and that compounding does amazing things over long periods of time. I heard a story that Jeff Bezos said to Buffett, Warren, your investment thesis is so simple and yet so brilliant. Why doesn't everyone just copy you? Buffett simply replied, because nobody wants to get rich slow. Truer words were never spoken. The reason why most people won't get wealthy is because they don't want to get rich slow. They won't stick with the hard times to make it to the good times. And that's true for most things in life, whether you're working out or learning an instrument or whatever. Most people don't want to stay committed long enough to see the results. Everyone wants the hundred bagger, so they go after penny stocks and end up losing everything. Everyone wants the lottery win, the home run, the crypto that goes from a penny to a hundred bucks. But the odds of that happening to you are probably one in a million, thus aren't a way you should invest. When you have greed coupled with unrealistic expectations, you end up with a recipe for disaster. Speaking of Buffett, another lesson I learned from the dot-com days was to be wary of people who poo-poo Buffett. Back in the late 90s, some investors were saying that Buffett had lost his magic. And in the very short run, when stocks with no fundamentals were shooting up, they were kinda right. But long term, they couldn't have been more wrong. 
Heck, before the recent stock market correction was happening, I was seeing more people discount Buffett and instead were hyping up people like Kathy Woods. I actually think Kathy is a bright lady who hopefully has a great future ahead of her, but she's not been running her funds long enough to be compared to what a Buffett or a Lynch has accomplished. Side note, one of my best performing non-dividend stocks lately has been Berkshire. Anyways, let's see how Kathy does in the upcoming decade and I hope she does great. Speaking of doing great, the dot-com market taught me that everyone is a winner in a bull market. People who have mostly experienced only bull markets thinks it's easy and normal to make fast money. Unfortunately, that's not true. My stocks took a long time to grow, but they did grow. For example, I have over a million bucks worth of dividend stocks in my retirement accounts because I've had it for a long time, even though I rarely hit the annual contribution limits. My first job had a salary of 30k and I wasted lots of money on dating and cars and stuff like that and I was never obsessive about investing or saving. But I did consistently invest over the decades when it came into bigger lump sums from bonuses or selling profitable real estate or whatever, then I'd usually put more cash into stocks. Like I did a video called Watch Me Buy $450,000 of Dividend Stocks in my 2 million plus portfolio, which was money that came to me from selling my house. Almost two years ago I turned off my drips and started using my dividends to pay all my bills and it's been an amazing experience. Being financially free is as awesome as you'd think it'd be and I'm so grateful that I went down the dividend path and didn't quit when times were rough. I have a wife and two kids and I started YouTube as a way to educate my kids on how their dad invests and now I find that social media is a fun hobby. Okay, back to the lessons. One big lesson I learned from the dot-com era was to be very careful about investing in unproven businesses that are part of new trends. Like blockchain right now. I personally think that blockchain will become big, but I also believe that only a handful of the hundreds of companies that are currently doing blockchain will end up doing well. That doesn't mean you should ignore new trends or companies, but I'd recommend investing the majority of your assets in proven companies and then hold back a small percentage for riskier plays. The next lesson I learned was that many investing tips are crap. What I mean is that most of the tips, suggestions, etc. that I got in the dot-com days from BBS chat rooms, IRC chats, internet forums, etc. were often bad. These days it's no different. Whether it's TikTok videos or Reddit forums or YouTube videos or whatever, lots of people push garbage. There is some solid advice out there, but the crap is also quite prevalent. So don't blindly listen to anyone out there, including me. Always do your own due diligence. Speaking about bad advice, another lesson I had was that when experts are predicting something will happen, it doesn't always happen. I've just seen it proven so many times that no one knows what the future will bring. I actually think it's prudent to listen to what experts say, but don't blindly accept it. I think people who say things like, the market will definitely crash this year, or whatever, are naive. It's fine to say you think we're headed for a big crash. Heck, for people in small cap non-dividend stocks today, they've already been in a big crash. But it's silly to say something will happen. The reality is that indicators that something often happens doesn't mean it will happen. So all of that is a lesson in itself, which is that no one can consistently predict when a crash or recession will happen. I mean, I can pretty much promise you that the markets will crash big at some point, but no one knows when. So try to get your finances into a state where you'll be okay if the markets blow up and stay low for a decade, and ideally you want to be ready to exploit the lows. I've personally never been good at sitting on lots of cash, as I always find deals in any market, but that's what many really good investors do. Okay, another lesson I learned was that markets go up and down faster than you'd probably anticipate they would. I mean, the pandemic market recovery was amazing. Who thought things would rebound that quickly? Anyways, one of the biggest lessons I learned in the dot-com crash was that stock prices inevitably trend towards intrinsic value. I like to say that a company's true worth acts like gravity on stock prices, and sometimes people push something higher than it's worth or let it fall more than it's worth, but eventually prices always go back towards earnings. However, it can take years for the market to correctly price a stock, which itself is another lesson, which is that the market can undervalue or overvalue a stock for a long time. 
Look at Amazon. Oh, and Amazon just did a 24-on split. So here it shows Amazon with a split adjusted price of about $5 in 1999, which means it was at about $100 a share back then. It fell from over $100 a share in 1999 to low of what is $0.36 cents now, which means it fell to about $6 or $7 a share. That also means that Amazon crashed over 90% when the dot-com bubble burst. Then it took about a decade, aka the lost decade, for Amazon's stock to return back to its 1999 high. Despite this huge stock drop, Bezos never doubted Amazon's business model. You survived. What was it that made you to survive and virtually the rest of them are gone? Well, um, I, it was very, that whole period is very interesting because the stock is not the company and the company is not the stock. And so as I watched the stock fall from 113 to 6, I was also watching all of our internal business metrics, number of customers, profit per unit, um, uh, you know, uh, everything you can imagine, defects, etc. Every single thing about the business was getting better and fast. And so as the stock price was going the wrong way, everything inside the company was going the right way. The same dramatic stock price drop and time to recover happened to Microsoft as well. Okay, tied to the previous lesson about how stock prices will oscillate around the gravity of intrinsic value is that metrics seem to eventually revert back to average trends. Moving on, another big lesson for me was realizing that dividend stocks were more suited to my personality and goals than non-dividend stocks. I loved seeing dividends flow in. I loved seeing dividend hikes. It was tangibly motivating to constantly see progress, whereas my non-dividend stocks only seemed compelling when their stock price went up. My quality blue chip dividend stocks lost less in the dot-com crash than most other stocks, even though they still lost. Dividend stocks were less stressful because the ones I liked often had lower betas and because I found that dividends were more predictable. Even as the market fell, my dividends kept getting paid. They were a beacon of hope during a dreadful time. I hadn't decided to focus primarily on dividend stocks yet, even though I had some, but the dot-com crash helped push me in that direction. Yes, today I still invest in some non-dividend companies, but I prefer dividends. I mean, I saw that as Rome burned around me as the markets crashed, good dividend companies kept paying. The J&Js, the Procter & Gamble's, the McDonald's, the strong companies kept paying me dividends. And again, I saw how dividends kept paying in the financial crisis, which helped really seal the deal for me. But not all dividend-paying companies are good. One of the lessons I learned in the dot-com crash was that in the long run, good companies win. Companies with growing sales and cash flow and that have strong moats, well, those are the ones you want to own. So even though companies can be underpriced for years, like Amazon, long-term investors will win. The people who got wrecked are the ones that sold and stayed out. Another learning from the dot-com experience was that there are always going to be events that shake the markets. Back then we had Y2K. Now we have a pandemic and a war and inflation. Tomorrow it'll be aliens or something. But your long-term mindset will help you remain strong through the downtimes, as will your dividends. My final lesson I learned was that you should really consider hitting the thumbs up button, subscribing if you haven't yet, and you should click that bell notification. Also, please share one of my videos with someone you know. I'd really appreciate it. Now I'd like to shout out my newest Patreon aristocrats. So thank you KC Runner for signing back up as a Patreon aristocrat for an entire year to get the 10% discount. And I'd like to thank Chauncey J for signing up for an entire year as well. Also thank you Andrew Johns for signing up. There are limited Patreon aristocrat spots remaining, so sign up now if you're interested. Aristocrats gain access to my dividend portfolio tracker spreadsheet, which I use in lots of my videos, and they gain special access to various private channels on my Discord, including one which lets you watch my videos before I release them publicly on YouTube, as well as lets you vote on which thumbnail I should use. Finally, don't forget to join my free dividend Discord chat server, which has thousands of investors on it from around the world. Thanks for watching, stay positive, and I'll talk to you again real soon.
I am not a financial advisor and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I am only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments.